Lenny. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to episode 65 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on the Front Porch. Well, Lenny, there's a chill in the air. It's November. Burr. Burr. <laughs> <laughs> You're sitting there in a sweatshirt. <laughs> And I walked outside today, and this is the first time this year I was like, oh, that's cold. That is cold out. Yeah, it was kind of chilly this morning. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Fall is definitely playing with us. Winter is pretending that it's not just around the corner, but it is. I don't like any of this. Yeah, I like the summer. Me too. So that's why it was nice to read The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafak, because it mostly takes place in very sunny, very hot Cyprus. (laughs) But then the story many years later takes place in cold winter. That part wasn't quite as enjoyable. (laughs) Elif Shafak is an award-winning British-Turkish novelist. She has published 19 books, and her work has been translated into 55 languages. Shafik holds a PhD in political science, and she has taught at various universities in Turkey, the U.S., and the U.K., including St. Anne's College and Oxford University, where she is an honorary fellow. She also holds a Doctorate of Humane Letters from Bard College, And she is a founding member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. And those are just a sampling of her accomplishments. Yes, she is certainly a very accomplished person. And I think this book really showcases her expertise in political science, in Turkish history, and the life of a researcher, which with her PhD, we know that she has done a lot of research. So our main characters are Costas, a Christian Greek Cypriot, his girlfriend Daphne, a Muslim Turkish Cypriot, and the daughter they have many years later, Ada. This book bounces back and forth in time, and we learn about Costas and Daphne's forbidden love and the war that tears them apart, their lives alone, and then their eventual reunion, marriage, and birth of their beloved daughter. But we also learn about the wounds they both carry and how some of those wounds can't be healed even by love. Mm. The book goes in and out of a couple of decades over their course of the life. But where they meet and fall in love is Cyprus in the 1970s. Now, Nancy, did you know anything about Cyprus in the 1970s? Okay. I enjoyed reading this book because I remember the news and it seemed like the war in Cyprus was on the news all the time. It just seemed like a terrible conflict, all kinds of violence, and I don't think that my brain has ever updated that version of Cyprus or even examined it. I mean, I remember the childhood exposure to Cyprus, and then I never really thought much more about it. So this book for me was an opportunity to 
re-examine those memories and get up to date with what Cyprus is today and the ramifications of that violence. How about you? What do you remember from Cyprus? I don't remember anything about Cyprus. (laughs) I think I got turned off by the news, which of course was on every night in our house at 630 with Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite. Yeah. What I remember was the Vietnam War ending. Yeah. And Watergate. And nauseum. Yes. In the 70s. So I think I just blanked out. Like, I'm like, yeah, I don't need to be a part of any of that. <laughs> 630 nonsense going on. <laughs> I think I went to the center and had fun with my friends at 630. Being a teenager, that's probably the best thing that you could be doing. But really, you don't remember anything about the war in Cyprus? Nothing. Really? Okay. Absolutely so nothing. Did it surprise you to find out about the war in Cyprus in reading this book? Yes. I didn't even know there were two different kinds of people there with two different nationalities and yeah. religion. I didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was all like, I just considered it Greece or Greek or just a pretty island where people go vacation and stop on cruise ships. This is what I thought Cyprus was. Isn't it interesting? It's certainly those things as well. Yes. But it is kind of this active, militarized, divided island as well. Yeah. I didn't know anything about all of that. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was this book does bounce around in time. And it made me think of the rabbit hutch, which also bounced around in time. And I remember you saying that was so confusing and you had trouble following it. So I was wondering, were you able to follow the flow of the narrative in this book or did you find it similarly confusing? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Since you had me reading all of these books, Nancy, I've a little bit more knowledgeable and that some authors take swanky approaches to the (laughs) way. But I will tell you this, chapter two or three, I don't know. After Ada has her screaming fit and her dad pits her up at school, the next thing I know, I'm thinking her father's burying her in the yard. Oh, <gasps> no. I think the same thing. And I'm like, Don't no. want it. what is Nancy having me read? What is this book? Is the father going, is she upset? What is that? What kind of book is this? <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I thought this is just a trickster. It's at the very end of the cha- that chapter that it says that it's a fig tree. <laughs> that the fig tree's talking. What? A talking fig tree? I'm like, this Matt, the man is going to bury his daughter. He's upset with her. He's just going to go in live. Okay. Ooh. Because the tree is absolutely alive. So she's going in live. I'm like, oh. Nancy, this is beckoning the this horrible movie that I saw where they threw live children in the grave. What? Okay. An elder would die in, in the Amazon and this tribe. They would throw a child in the grave with them to keep them company in the afterlife. Oh, my goodness. that's And so I'm like, what in the heck is this book? Okay. And then I realized, oh, okay. Well, the tree's talking. Okay, that's at least <laughs> that's at least better, I guess. <laughs> Not sure I understand all of this. I think at that point it was like I'm going to read the jacket of this book and find out what this what this book is about. Mm-hmm. Thank gosh it's not about murder. 
So after you figured out that there was a talking tree and, <laughs> and that Costas did not murder his beloved daughter, were you able to follow the timeline that, that jumped around or did you find that bothersome? It was not bothersome to me because okay. it said right at the beginning of every chapter, what decade are we in? Right. And then there was the tree symbolized when the tree was going to be talking. <laughs> so that kind of kept me going because the tree lasts all these decades as well. Right. So we need to know is the tree in Cyprus and is it the 1970s? Is the tree in England? What decade is it? Yeah. So I liked that with the author. Look, if I can follow the book, anybody can. It wasn't a problem. Nothing was a problem with this book after I found out this girl was not going to be buried alive. I was hooked in. <laughs> it is important to note, Ada survives the story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we like her. We like her so much. We yes. like her. So what did you like most about Ada? I think she's a good teenager. She talks like a teenager. She responds like a teenager. There's all this stuff about her on the internet and social media. So she provides a real updated version compared to like, you know, when I think about Cyprus in the 1970s, it's almost like the old world. Like it's the old customs and the traditions and the folklore and the religion and all this old stuff. And Ada is like this new fresh face and she has her insecurities with her peers and she's trying to find herself, but she is a very real person. I probably thought her character was more real in some ways, mm -hmm. more authentically her than looking back on young love at the restaurant, you mm -hmm. know, falling in love. Ada has a lot of personality and a lot of things going on. Who was your favorite, Nancy, as you read the book? Oh, I think the fig tree was my favorite. Oh, really? <laughs> I just, I love that fig tree. She was, she was such a observant. Well, you even gave her a pronoun. Well, she, she was a she. Was she? Oh, yeah, because Costas refers to her as she. And you remember at one point, Ada is like, I can't believe you're even calling her as she. And he's like, well, she is a she because oh, yeah, she is right. the type of tree that is specifically female rather than neither male or female or both male and female. Mm. I loved the way the tree observed what was going on around her. I thought she was very funny. Like she had these prejudices of her own. There were certain trees types that she was like, well, they're no fig. <laughs> <You> <laughs> and she had, she had very strong feelings about the failings of humans and the ways that humans are blind to certain things or pay too much attention to other things. She had a lot of thoughts and feelings that I thought were very funny. Well, she got a lot of chapters. She did get a lot of chapters. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I love the fig tree. She had such a personality. She was always chatting. She'd chat with the butterfly that came in. She'd chat with the mouse. 
she had very strong feelings against the mosquito. Mm-hmm. She was just very interesting. She's proud. Very proud. Yeah, and she has her own journey. She is damaged during the war. She doesn't know if she will survive when Costas takes a cutting of her and how she'll do in England. And then, of course, he has to bury her during the cold winter, and we don't know how that's going to turn out. And I thought the way the author described her fear of being buried was really interesting. Now you see why I thought it was... Yeah, I, I love the tree. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, I did love 630 and lessons in chemistry, too. Yeah, you did. I think it's fun when authors animate and give human consciousness and thought processes to non-human creatures and then play with that and reveal interesting things by thinking about, well, what would a tree be thinking in this situation? What might a dog notice? It shows, I think, some real innovation and playfulness that I really Mm -hmm. admire. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Costas and Daphne kind of become this Maria and Tony from West Side Story. They have different cultures, different customs. And so their love was in many ways forbidden. Definitely. The parents would not have been happy with either side of them hooking up with the other side. Right. I did like the sister in the the book who plays a part in all of this. And she ends up changing her mind about Costas a bit. But she stays true to herself. She keeps the secret that Daphne is dating and actually becomes pregnant with this child, which again is another shame at that time. People would have been mortified. But as that is where the book starts, the ethnic tension increases from that point to be one of war. And the sides become further apart and the fear and uh, the violence grow from that point. Mm -hmm. Like you, I definitely was thinking of other love stories like that in literature. So I was thinking of Romeo and Juliet and how those stories often depict that love is really what matters, but those who dare to challenge those kinds of societal structures can end up in tragic fates. Then it's the beauty of a pure love and the tragedy that ensues. It takes that kind of juxtaposition for people to re-examine their own hate and prejudice and say, we're not sure that was worth it. And so this story does seem to do that. It's just this very human desire to other people who aren't like yourself. And when you other them, they're not us. You start to demonize them. You start to think that they are your enemies. And I thought this novel did a really interesting job in portraying that 
Daphne's family, and they weren't bad people. Costas's mom loved him dearly, but yet they clung to these particular ideas and ideals of who they were, who their children should be. And that ended up having disastrous consequences for Costas and Daphne. Right. I liked at one point at the end, he asked about who they were digging up. She said they're islanders. And I thought that was one of the most powerful points of the whole story. I agree. Because that was the one where you said, no, see, all of that war stuff, it didn't matter. We were all a part of Cyprus. Right. We were all children of this country and of this island. I liked how that came back and showed a bit of healing, hopefully, that had taken place within the hearts of the people that lived there. There was still trauma amongst a lot of the people and prejudice. But when she said, it doesn't matter, it was an islander, I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, and it certainly shows her evolution as well, to be able to say, it doesn't matter who these people are we're exhuming. They were loved by people who deserve to know what happened to their loved one and deserve to be able to bury them in the manner that they see fit. Mm -hmm. I thought the end where Ada has learned about her parents' history and Costas has promised to take her to Cyprus because she's never been to Cyprus. She doesn't speak Turkish. She doesn't speak Greek. She really has been unable to find out anything about her parents and their history. They have refused to tell her about any of that. So her aunt, Miriam, asks her whether she's going to visit the Greek or the Turkish side first. And Ada says, She's visiting Islanders. So mm -hmm. she has picked that up from her mother. And that seems like a really hopeful sign of a new generation. But the reality is Cyprus is still divided in half. And it remains an intractable conflict that many peacekeepers have tried to resolve over the years. And there's still this uh, this conflict that remains. So while Daphne and some others have overcome prejudices, it certainly still remains very active today. Oh, Nancy, I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's rather sad. It is. It makes me think of Northern Ireland when we were growing up and all the troubles yeah. in Northern Ireland. I do remember that. Yeah. I remember thinking, why in the world are Protestants <laughs> fighting Catholics? Thing. Like what? A Christian family, what are you doing? Get along, for goodness sakes. You're praying to the same God. <laughs> and you both pray to Jesus, too. It, Jesus, help us kill our brother. <laughs> I, it just seems so impossible to understand. But it's like, you know, most of these conflicts... We speak a different language. Yeah, but we're all human. I think all of this sounds very Pollyanna-ish, you know, sitting here in the United States. Right. But I do think this book really illustrates the consequences of what some of that division can mean. Right. And then there's this whole thread of not only did the division and the chaos among the people, but this author 
talks about how this permeates into the land and ecology. So interesting. Thread on nature's response. So the happy fig gets damaged in all of this fighting. Right. The tavern, right? The tavern burns down and the owners try to put out the flames and they do, but it's still damaged. It does talk about trauma on plants. And I did not know this. This is going to give me something to think about because of trauma with people. So there's a lot on generational trauma. And this author talks about how trees learn mm-hmm. and how trees communicate yeah. with other trees or other things around them and how trees offspring can learn from the trauma too and have better survival as they live because they have learned how to overcome the trauma. So it's got this very interesting ecological thread to it, which was surprising to me. But that part I really liked. I was like, oh, to learn about trauma and how trees are, or they talk about a couple of other animals too, which we talked about that come in and have a a chapter or a voice about what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. You know, I've read several books in the last couple of years that delve into trees specifically. Really? Yeah. How trees can act as an organism sometimes, how when one tree is facing a threat, it communicates to other trees about that threat so that the trees can prepare themselves for the threat. It's really interesting. So I would say for me, some of that information was not new because I have read of this research before, but I loved how she did weave that into the story. And as you said, it's not just the trees. It's like, well, what happens to the butterflies? What happens to the songbirds? We learn about malaria and the mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. So I did think all of that was wonderful. It just ended up creating a very complete and full story world. Yeah, I thought that that was interesting. What did she say about the mosquito, that the mosquitoes that carry malaria, they kill the little babies inside of them? Yeah, they are infected by a parasite. Yeah. So they're passing on the parasite to any of their offspring who will die of it as well. Yeah, I just, I didn't know about that. So you mentioned the child that they have when they're just teenagers. As the novel goes on, we learn that Daphne has stayed in Cyprus after the war starts. Costas has been sent to England to stay with an uncle by his mother. Daphne has given up the child that she and Costas have conceived, and he doesn't even know that he has conceived a child. That child dies. And Daphne also feels responsible in some way for the death of the owners of the tavern, the happy fig. That's Yorgos and Yusuf. That's where Daphne and Costas have secretly met. So her work, when Costas returns to Cyprus uh, 25 years later and meets her as an adult is, as you mentioned, exhuming victims of war. And I thought that was really an interesting job that the author gave Daphne. 
I thought that the exhumation work that Daphne was doing mirrored the emotional work she needed to do in exhuming the secrets in her life. So the secrets of her and Costas's relationship, the secret of this child that she gave up, the secret of the child's death, the secret that she had basically witnessed the murder of the owners of the tavern. Ultimately, she overdoses. Perhaps it's a suicide. We don't know for sure, I don't think. And Costas tells Ada that Daphne was like a girdled tree that is, quote, strangled by its own roots and that Daphne couldn't escape her pain and the great love that they shared couldn't heal her. I thought that was an interesting diagnosis that Costas came up with because he is a researcher that studies trees, but what an apt description of someone who can't get over something earlier in their life that has happened and just can't get beyond it, this idea of a tree that is strangled by its own roots. I thought that was really a striking image. Yeah, Daphne does carry a lot of secrets and a lot of trauma, not only from the war, but of having this baby out of wedlock and then giving the baby up. She does look at abortion as an option at one time. She's had a really, really hard life. Yeah. In a lot of ways, what I like about her character is that she is not perfect. She's on her own healing journey. Yeah. She does allow Costas back into her life. She does go on to have another baby. She leaves her beloved Cypress. Mm -hmm. So she does grow. She does become a person, but she's not completely healed from it. She, it seems to me, develops alcoholism. Definitely. Um, She could have been prone to some of that earlier on. She is using that as a way to cope Mm -hmm. from her troubles. Because she doesn't want her daughter to know, and she is very forceful about this. She does not want to talk about Cyprus. She does not want to raise her child knowing anything about her culture. There shows that the secret continues. Yeah. There shows that the they're still not processing it. I talk a lot about processing people's trauma because that's how I look at it. But we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And boy, she is out of Cyprus for a long time because Ada is what, like 15 or something when we pick up the story. And so she has lived in a different country for 15 years. And it's a long time before that, that the war ended. So she still carries the trauma with her that is holding her back. And then we have the fig tree who we learn from the fig tree that trauma is passed on. Mm -hmm. Now there's the hope with Ada that especially because Daphne's sister becomes part of her life and she will go back to Cyprus and she will learn about the customs and all of that, that hopefully that she doesn't grow up with her own. But I wonder too, with the screaming fit from a therapeutic lens here, we are talking about trauma now that Ada has, because she has a mother who is an alcoholic and she has a mother who has secrets and she doesn't know about family and she's not connected with her family on either side of her. Right. 
And so she is affected by the trauma of her mother, but she doesn't really know it. All she knows is she was screaming and she did not know why in class. At one point in the book, I think the fig tree maybe is the one that says this, says that family traumas are like thick, translucent resin dripping from a cut in the bark. They trickle down generations. Mm -hmm. Daphne felt that she was protecting Ada by not telling her anything. Mm -hmm. But this book illustrates it really is what you call processing it, that if she could have processed it, if she could have shared at developmentally appropriate levels uh, with her daughter about hers and Costas's lives, that that wouldn't have been such a missing puzzle piece in Ada's life. I thought that Ada was a great illustration of that third generation. I think somewhere in the book, too, when Daphne and a colleague are interviewing people about the war and where the bodies are, at some point they say, well, there's the oldest generation who went through it. And as they get older, they're trying to kind of assuage their consciences many times by trying to come to terms with the violence that happened. And then there's the second generation, and that generation completely tries to repress it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want people talking to their parents about it. They're completely repressing it. And it's the third generation who wants to dig that up. They're really curious. They want to know what happened, why it happened. And that is really illustrated, I think, in this family as well. I thought of World War II when I read that and how that kind of mirrored what happened there, I think, in their society. Yeah. And it's only recently, well, recently, but at some point with me growing up, there was a renewed interest in the children to say, hey, what was grandpa doing during World War II? <laughs> and what was going on in the war? Where were my family members? Do we know people who died? Do we know people who were a part of the Nazi machine? Mm-hmm. But I, I like the insight that she shared yeah. there. I also like her critique of the internet. As you mentioned, Ada has a kind of a screaming episode in school, and one of her classmates records it and then posts it on the internet. And so here's a situation that would be embarrassing for any 15 or 16-year-old girl who feels like she literally has no control over her body. It's not like she decided she was going to stand up and scream and take a stand. No, it almost is as though this happens to her. She's not choosing it. She's distressed that she's doing it, but she can't even stop when she started screaming until she can't scream anymore. So something that would be very embarrassing to a girl's life now suddenly it's on the internet and the whole world is seeing it. It becomes kind of a viral situation, which really exacerbates the hurt and the harm that it does to her. She wants to transfer to a different school. She thinks there's no going back. But then there's this interesting twist that there are some people who are posting comments that are very sympathetic and 
eventually this kind of morphs into a mini movement hashtag do you hear me now with other <laughs> people standing and screaming like off a iceberg in Greenland or into the heather and wherever I thought that was so fun and interesting what an interesting twist on this and then of course when Ada returns back to school there are some people who want to isolate her but then there are also some classmates who are very warm to her. I thought that was just a very interesting sequence of events that happens in this incident that starts the book out. Yeah, I guess here you talk about that. I did enjoy that part of it because it gave some levity into her and she started to see certainly she was shamed by what she had done and yeah. this thing went viral, but that there was a light out there and there was hope that she had started something more positive and other people felt the way she did. They yeah. just felt like screaming. Yeah. And she gave them the voice to just stand up and scream if they wanted to. So I really liked that. I think there is a parallel between what you were just saying about some people take the bad stuff of life and they add insult to injury and they keep negativity and trauma, hatred alive. And there are other people that grow something positive out of the experience. Yeah. And so the, like that, do you hear me now screaming kind of thing that happens are those people that turn something into positive and just like her schoolmates, I think there's a little boy that maybe has a crush on her. At least we hope so. We hope so. Yeah. And then there's, there's always the smarky kids that are, always, you know, <laughs> there's them that like to relive the somebody else's demise. Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of, I think culturally showed what was happening in Cyprus, maybe where some people were healing and moving on and, and trying to, uh, bring closure to it in a respectful way and move on and be those peacemakers. And then there's other people that are living in the past yeah. and want to keep stoking the flames of hatred and prejudice. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. My last question, at the very end, we learned that Daphne has inhabited the fig tree. Oh my goodness gracious. And that really shifts the perspective of the fig's narration. I have to say personally, I did not like that at all. Okay. And I told you already, the fig tree was my favorite character, but I felt then that that somehow hijacked the fig tree's voice because the fig tree in Cyprus is the fig tree, right? Right. I found it confusing. I didn't like it. I wanted the fig tree to have her own point of view. I, I did not like this idea. What did you think about that? Well, it was confusing to me because then I thought, well, now, is that why he loved the fig tree? Because he realized Daphne was in it. And so he was nurturing the fig and taking good care of it because he knew like she existed in it or it reminded her of him. She would talk up to the fig tree. He loved the fig tree. So there was some kind of connection that he felt with this tree so did he know that she was a part of it yeah it got a little muddy for me I like the idea of the fig staying its own person with its own experiences and its own insight away from the story as just an observer mm -hmm. 
it did make me want to go back and read the fig tree sections again. But I actually decided I didn't want to do that. And I would just forget that supposedly Daphne inhabits the fig tree. All of Cyprus fig tree would have been the fig tree. Even the early fig tree in England would be the fig tree. So she's only kind of taken over the fig tree in the last 11 months. Yeah. I decided I was just going to ignore that part of the story. I kind of ignored that part of the story too, to be honest with you. (laughs) Do you have any idea what the author might have been attempting with that? I don't know. I don't know if she's still stuck, Nancy. She hasn't decided to go to heaven yet. Are you still unfinished? You're stuck. You're in your trauma. You're not able to move on in some way. Was it symbolic of that, do you think? Possibly, because Miriam, her sister, says she's praying for Daphne's soul to ascend to heaven or whatever the Muslim equivalent of that would be. I think she does say heaven, though. Well, she better keep praying because she's stuck she's in the stuck, Yeah, <laughs> but she chooses. Yeah, she does choose that. And I don't know, is she watching over Costas and Ada? It doesn't say that she's watching over and that she loves them and she doesn't want to be a part of their lives. Yeah. Like, it's not about that at all in the book. Yeah. Like, if the tree would at some point say, I need to take care of Costas, or I like watching Ada grow mm-hmm. and making sure, she, I like giving shade to Ada. Mm-hmm. It's not about that. So I don't know. But she is trying to communicate to Costas how much she loves him. Really? Yeah. Um, like at the this was at the very beginning of the book. Oh. You know, she's talking about it might seem crazy for a fig tree to love a man so much. Mm. And it's crazy to think that he might reciprocate my love. So there there is that I thought aspect that was Ada talking. That's why I don't remember that because I'm like, he's gonna bury this poor girl. <laughs> That's why I missed that whole section. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, different, different thoughts on the fig. That'd be interesting to hear what other people have to say on the fig tree. Yeah, it really did. So overall, what would you say? Enjoyed the book? Didn't enjoy the book? What were your Uh, thoughts? Everything was was great after I realized that the child wasn't going to die <laughs> in the grave. I was uh-huh. fine with the book. Yeah. I did like the ecology. I did like the trauma focus, uh, learning about a nice little love story. Yeah. I, there were parts of the book that I really liked. Yeah. I loved being taken to a part of the world that I have not given a lot of thought to, Cyprus, and living a very traumatic time in that island's history. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, certainly know more about Cyprus now. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Nancy, this is our first talk about the Island of Missing Trees. We have one more drop that will be November 15th, where we will talk about it some more. Yeah. Everyone, thanks for listening. Our website is frontporchbookclub.com. Our episodes come out twice a month on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. All right, Lenny. See you next time. See ya.